we have um, been journeying through the biblical narrative for some time, and we found ourselves in the books of poetry and wisdom for a while. We've been taking about a year plus now to go just through the Bible stories. And uh, we jumped kind of ahead of the historical record. We jumped ahead to these, this section um, of poetry and wisdom because some of the historical characters, like David and Solomon, wrote some of these books. So we jumped ahead to them, and we're going to wrap them up today with our final part about Job in a few minutes here. I do want to make a quick commercial for next week. We're going to go back to the historical story of the Bible next week. And we're going to start kind of a series within our bigger series. So next week we're going to start talking about the topic of thrones. And you don't want to miss that because it's going to be a, a time of adventure and plotting and betrayal and murder and espionage and all sorts of exciting things next week. But anyhow, we'll get into that for a number of weeks starting next Sunday. But today we're going to wrap up our section on um, the books of poetry and wisdom. And we're finishing with Job, who is actually the earliest one. And this is our third and final week on Job. So let me give you a little background for those of us who missed a week or so and didn't remember all the pieces. Job is 42 chapters long. The first two chapters of Job are the most famous chapters. It's kind of the adventure of, uh, you know, I mean, not the adventure in a good sense, but just the shocking part, the interesting part. Um, Job is a man of extreme privilege and extreme blessing and wealth who loses it all just loses it all. He goes extreme privilege to extreme heartache in a very short period of time. And as he's grieving the loss of his wealth entirely, his children are all killed in a tragic accident. His health fails him afterwards. He is grieving, um, but, he, but he praises the Lord in the middle of it all somehow. Then his friends show up. He has three friends show up. And we saw last week how that they came and they supported him through his heartache for a while. They, were, they just sat with him in silence and just supported him. Uh, good friends would do. But then after a week, Job began to wear down and he began to complain to God about what had happened to him. And he said, I wish I would never have been born. God, why did you let me live this long and enjoy what I enjoyed and only to lose it all? I wish I would have died in my mother's womb. And as he complains about that, his friends get concerned and they decide they need to correct his bad theology. He's not talking to God right. So they begin to say carefully to him, Job, I think you need to look at God through a healthier lens. And Job's just grieving. He's, not trying, to, he's just trying to get through. So they're, they're trying to give him some, some perspective, some better worldview. And Job is feeling defensive, so he defends himself to his friends, and they begin to argue their ideologies, and the, they begin to fight over how they viewed what God was doing, to the point that it became uncivil, to the point where Job's friends began to say terrible things to him, because again, they became more about the issue, like we do sometimes in culture, fighting for their issue that they stood for, and losing sight of the individual that was getting trampled by it. And so as they fought for their issue and as they fought for their viewpoint, Job, on the other side of that viewpoint, was feeling crushed by them. And he begins to push back at them and say that they're wrong. And they, they say, you're getting what you deserve. If you, if you have not seen our theological viewpoint yet, if you've not come around to our view of God and our view of how things are, then you are a bad person. You must be getting what you deserve. And Job took that so personal that he begins to say, I'm an innocent man, and God is mistreating me. And Job steps out of pocket towards God. Job never spoke out of, out of turn towards God when he lost his wealth, even when he lost his kids, and when he lost his health. But when his friends demeaned him and, and, and his pride was hurt because they said, you're getting what you deserve, it became too much for him to bear. And in the middle of their assault, by beating him down with their worldview, 
he began so defensive that he says things about God that are not what he said before. He speaks out of, out of turn in defense of himself. And that's his own fault. God's going to deal with that. But the friends, I never want to be the friend that is so concerned about my issues and how I see the world and my viewpoint that I crush people along the way to make my point because I'm right and provoke them to a bad reaction in their faith. But his friends have done that. And so when this conversation is over, Job stops talking. Job says, my words are ended. And Job's friends, in Job 32, verse 1, it says Job's three friends refused to reply further to him because he kept insisting on his innocence. So now everyone's done talking, and they're sitting in silence once again. And this is what's a big deal, is the story began with a friend showing up, sitting in silence with Job, but they were all close. But now after this long debate, after arguing how they saw their theological view and how they thought the, the, how God worked and how they saw suffering in the world and God's justice, and as they fought for their viewpoint, and both sides ramped up their verbiage and ramped up their personal insults to the other one's view, they're now back to where they started. They're sitting in silence. But the damage was done to the relationship. The sad part is no one changed anyone's mind. This is so important for us to remember. No one changed anyone's mind. For all the posturing, and we do the same thing, for all the opinions we have that we throw out into the world today in person or on social media, who's changing anyone's mind? No one's mind was changed. They all were sitting back in silence in the end, still set in their thinking, but now hurt in their relationships and not talking to each other. The damage had been done relationally, and nothing good was coming out of it. Everyone's silent. I'm going to introduce to you a character for a few minutes that doesn't matter to the story. But if you're reading through Job with us, I don't want you to miss it. So I'm going to take a few minutes to give him a nod. And then we're going to move on to the end of the story. This, this, this fairly unimportant person, his name is Elihu. Elihu comes out of nowhere. He wasn't there at the beginning when the stage was set for Job and his friends. He shows up out of nowhere and he just jumps in with an opinion. Everyone else is talking, so he's got to talk. You know, what's on your mind? i got to say what's on my mind. It's the typical thing when drama's happening, someone else wants to wade into the drama, right? Someone wants to wade into it because, after all, i got to say my piece too. i got to throw some, some, ver, you know, some words into the noise as well. So Elihu jumps in and speaks in verse 2. It says, Then Elihu, the son of Barakal the Buzite of the clan of Ram, became angry. He was angry with Job because Job refused to admit that he had sinned, that God was right in punishing him. He was also angry with Job's three friends, for they made God appear to be wrong by their inability to answer Job's arguments. So Elihu had waited for the others to speak to Job because they were older than he, but when he saw that they had no further reply, he spoke out angrily. So the guy shows up, he says, Job is wrong, these guys are wrong, this whole debate is wrong, but I know the answer. He's young, he waits his turn, but then with his zeal and the passion of making sure everyone heard his viewpoint, he begins to speak. And no one pays attention to him. For six chapters, for six chapters, he rambles on. No one says a word. Job's silent. The friends are silent. And then he, he disappears. He's gone afterwards. And, and so we don't know who Elihu is and where he came into the story partway through and where he goes to when he's done talking. There's a very minority view, a minority theological view that thinks he's some kind of a picture of Jesus in coming in and out of the picture, but that doesn't add up to the majority of us believe that doesn't make sense because Elihu is young and arrogant. He says ridiculous things to put everyone else down. He puffs up his own viewpoints. And at some point he says about Job, I hope that he's punished forever for what he has done wrong. 
which is not a very Christ-like thing. So I just think he's this young guy who jumps into a fight and says his piece. And that if you read the end and what we're going to go to next, God shows up. God shows up into the story in the form of a whirlwind. That's crazy. In the form of a whirlwind, here comes God. And a whirlwind is significant because if you remember the first week, of all that Job lost, his children were killed in an accident involving a whirlwind. Which means of the, of the tragedies that Job lost, that was the most personal. And now here comes God in the very form that was most personal to Job, showing up to have a conversation. And Elihu is still rambling. And what's interesting is Elihu rambles. You, 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 here's some homework for you. Ready? If you want to nerd out, because I don't have time to do this, Job 36, 22 through Job 37, Elihu towards the end of his long zealous speech, begins to describe an incoming storm. Like he sees the whirlwind rolling in and he describes it until all of a sudden at the end of chapter 37, it's there and he just is done. And Lihu goes away. I don't know if he just walks away or sits down or if the whirlwind goes zoom. You know, I don't know what happens to him. But he's gone. And now God shows up into the story of Job. And let's get there today. In Job 38 verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He says, Who is this? that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words. He's talking to Job when he says this, folks. I mean, I'd be, I'd be like, yeah, looking at the other guys. That's right. Oh, wait, me? Yeah, you, Job. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. God says in verse four, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Wow. That's the exact same thing that Eliphaz said to Job in last week's debate. Well, you weren't there when God made everything. You weren't there at the beginning, which was true. And God's saying the same thing. The difference was when, when Eliphaz said it to Job, Eliphaz wasn't there at the beginning either. He was just basically saying, God was there when you weren't, but I wasn't either, you know. That's why it's dumb to use arguments in our favor that are inconsistent. Anyhow, but God could say that. He's like, you weren't there at the beginning, Job. You don't know what I'm up to. You don't see my master plan. You don't see where this is heading to. You don't see where this started from. You don't know, where you, do you? And he just questions for two whole chapters. He asks Job question after question. Like, have you seen this, this beautiful animal I made in nature? That's so magnificent. Can you create that? Can you even understand it, let alone make it? Who do you think you are? He just grills Job for two chapters. And in chapter 40, I'm skipping all that. In chapter 40, then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? I mean, you seem to be critical of how I work in this world, so you must know more. Do you have answers for me? And Job's response is interesting. Job says in verse number three, Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers. I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. And you think that God would be done right now, but God is one of those things that we sometimes do when we're talking to somebody. Maybe if you're a parent, you're talking to your kids and you think you said it all, but then you remember something else. And another thing. Well, God does that right here. In verse number uh, six, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, hey, brace yourself like a man because I have some more questions for you and you must answer them. Will you, this is so big, will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right? He says, Job, you know, 
you have been so intent on defending your own honor that you're willing to throw me under the bus and discredit me, my justice, or condemn me to look good? Why? Well, th those guys, guys, we'll get to those guys. What about you? What is it about us? And just you and me today, what is it about us that sometimes we're so desperate to prove ourselves right or to protect our image to people who would condemn us that we're willing to, to do anything sometimes, to say anything, to even discredit somebody else or throw someone else under the bus or to point the blame so, so they shift the blame from us to somebody because it, it bothers us that we might look bad or wrong to somebody. What is it about us that gets that way? Like, why do we care so much what people think? Here's the crazy part. If people are good people, they're going to not think wrong, even if they temporarily get confused by the situation and might be tempted to think wrong for a while. Good people are going to figure it out in time and settle down and sort it out. And the jerks, well, the haters are just, you know, to quote St. Tay-Tay, they're going to just hate, 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 you know? And so I'm just saying, you know, we, we get so concerned about, about, you know, the people who are critical, but why do we care so much about what people think about us? And, and yet Job was so defensive of his, of his accusation. He's like, I didn't do anything wrong until these guys said I'm getting what I deserved. And in order to defend my honor, my reputation, and say it's not my fault, he said, I'll let God take the blame. God's, mispicking, God's picking on me. God's like, Really? It matters that much to you? You want to discredit my, to people who might need me later, need a relationship with me, you're willing to toss me under the bus so that you don't look bad? Why does it matter so much? Now, I know that as we read this, some of us might think that God is being pretty harsh to Job. Like, why is God picking on Job? Seriously, if you read the whole story with me, isn't Job like the good guy or the better guy? Okay, he, maybe he misspoke a little bit, but these other guys are jerks. Why is God picking on Job and not them? And the answer is simple, because, because Job mattered specially to God. It's, it's the same thing you see in, in, in any organization, in business, uh, nonprofit, you know, anything, where you have a team of people, paid or volunteer, and, and, you're, and you're having a leadership structure. The person who's trying to develop a team of people around them I, I listened to two podcasts while I traveled to Indianapolis to the hospital this week a couple of times and, and reminded me in a business world how much this principle is true, that, that good leaders have hard conversations. And do you know who you have the hard conversations with? You have them with the people that you have the most hope for. The person in your organization that has the potential to be the next leader, the next one to take over and do something great. You may have a couple other people that are barely holding on to their jobs and they're unruly. You know what you tend to do with them? You just ride that storm until you figure it out. But that person that you think has potential, that person that has greatness in them, you pour into them. You correct them. You inspire them. You give them some guidance. You speak into them. You're not trying to har harass them or hound them. You're trying to help them see a bigger picture because there's greatness there. It's a compliment. It's the same thing that the book of Proverbs taught us a few weeks ago when we read how that we should not be angry when God corrects us because whom God corrects those that he loves. That the biggest compliment in the world is for someone to say, I love you enough to speak into your situation. I love you enough to help you grow. And, and to have the hard conversations which no one wants to have is the kindest thing someone ever does for us. If we just can flip our, the switch in our mind that takes it personal when we're corrected and say, thank you for, taking, for caring enough to have a hard conversation with me or help me get better to anyone in our lives. And when God comes along and corrects us, that's because he loves us. And, and God's saying, Job, listen, I'm starting with you. Those guys, we'll get to those guys. But come on, Job, you. 
It's, there's a Bible principle elsewhere that says that judgment must begin at the house of God or judgment begins with the righteous. The idea is that God's still going to start with my own, deal with you, and then I'll get to all the other evils of the world later. And so God is starting with Job because Job was, was special, but he had gotten a little off course, and God's given him a hard time because of it. But look how Job responds. This is so beautiful. Verse, chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? And Job says, it is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. Job says, you, list, you said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. And then he said, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. And Job's attitude towards God's speech was not one of defensiveness or hostility. It was one of relief. He felt corrected and was glad to be. He says, God, I'm good now. It's needed to see you, to know that you're somewhere in the middle of this, and to hear what you had to say, I'm, I'm good. This is why it's important that we don't um, borrow, we don't get mad at God for how God talks to Job. Like, why is God talking to Job so harshly? Before you get mad at God for that, think about this. Job didn't feel that way. Remember uh, two weeks ago when we talked about suffering in the world, and I made a statement that some people who want to make a case against God or against his existence or his goodness will sometimes borrow the idea of suffering in the world to make a case against faith or against God, and yet we borrow the suffering from people who in many cases it's their suffering and their faith in God is what sustains them through their suffering. It is their hope in God that gets them through. And it's not fair for you to take someone else's suffering and co-op it to use it against the God that's getting them through, against the faith that is strengthening them. It's not fair to somebody else to do that. If someone's faith helps them through suffering, then who am I to diminish their faith because of their suffering? And the same thing goes here. Job is being corrected, and we can think God is being harsh. But hold on now. If anyone has a, has a right to feel harshly treated, it's not you and me, the reader. It's Job. And Job does not feel treated wrongly by God. Job says, God, thank you for correcting me. I appreciate you showing up. That means a lot. So when God's done with Job, he now turns his attention to the other guys. <clears throat> Verse 7. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and with your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. And I, I read that, it's almost weird. Because when you read what God said for those four chapters, he says a lot of the same things those guys said, and yet he said they didn't speak accurately about him. And then he says Job did speak accurately about him, but he spent four chapters correcting Job. So which is it, you know? I mean, I'm a little confused. But here's the thing that we understand. Neither, in, in the, the, the theological debate, neither side was perfectly right. Job was right about some things, but he got some things wrong in his, in his conclusions. The friends were right about some things, but they got some things wrong in their application. And neither one was accurate. They were partly right. And that's the problem with most of the things we say and hear. There's a partial rightness, a partial truth to it that makes us accept the whole thing must be right when it's not. And these friends were wrong about some very significant parts of their argument for God. For example, Job misspoke, but Job misspoke from suffering. Job began by saying God is faithful, praise the, his name, but he deteriorated while being attacked to finally saying God is picking on me. 
But that came from friends who said God is just, which is true, and God is bigger than all of us, which is true. But then their conclusion was, therefore, if you're suffering, it can't be that God is bad. It must be that you are bad. Therefore, you're getting what you deserve, which is not true. And so both were wrong. And this is why I always say, and and I want to just make it a, a clear point. We have to be careful not to be so dogmatic about how we view the world. Because guess what, folks? Probably like these guys in the debate from last week and today, we're probably all a little bit right and all a little bit wrong. It's why when we get to heaven someday, no one's going to find out that we had a corner on the truth. You know, there I am. Arlen was right all along. You know, praise his name. See, I told you guys. No, we're going to find out that I was probably very wrong about some stuff, and so were you. And so why would we spend this life beating people down, breaking relationships, blowing up community and relationships and all sorts of things over issues that we're probably all a little bit off on. Why can't we have some humility to to do what we believe and live like we believe is right? But then when it comes to projecting that on other people, to have some grace and some humility that says, I don't know. And I don't need to scream or clobber you about it. Because probably we're all a little bit wrong. And in Job's friend's case, They were all wrong, including Job. No one's theology was precise. Everyone was a bit wrong. But Job's friends, this is important, Job's friends were not just wrong about God. They were wrong towards Job, and that was the big deal. Sometimes we're not just wrong about something. We're wrong towards people in our zeal to be right about something. That's so dangerous. And so God addresses that problem. He says to the friends, here's here's God. He says to those three friends, so take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job will pray for you. I'll accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. That's a lot of words. God just said to those guys, guys, I am not wanting to talk to you right now. You need to go make things right with Job, and maybe if Job wants to pray for you, bring your little sacrificial systems and things that, you know, because here's God in the picture in this whirlwind. That's a pretty intense picture, and God's been talking to Job pretty sternly, and now God says to these guys, we're not good. And boy, if, if I were right there, I'd be like, oh God, I want to be good with, with you, because you're so powerful, very evidently powerful, and I know that anyhow. Let me make things right with you, God. And God's like, no. You make, th- you make things right with Job. And God prioritizes the relationship. This is such a Jesus thing. This is such a New Testament thing. I want to I just remind you that when Jesus shows up a while later, he would teach things like this all the time. For example, Jesus once said that if you come to the temple, bring a gift to the Lord to make you know, your relationship with God closer. But when you get to the temple with your gift, you remember that, that somewhere else someone has a problem with you, has something against you. To leave your gift at the altar and go make things right with that person and then come back and offer your sacrifice. Well, man, I don't care about that jerk. I want to be good with God. I want to be able to, to, to you know, deal with that a different time. But Jesus was teaching that we can't be wrong towards people and right with God. And so here's Job's friends, and they're like, God, we want to be okay. I said, like, we're not okay. You are terrible to Job. Well, what do we do? Don't pray to me. Pray to Job. Talk to Job. You go to the one you wronged and, and work it out with him. And that's our path forward. And God was in the business of prioritizing the relationships with each other because we are so good at, at separating our vertical morality from our horizontal morality. As long as I feel I'm good here, which who can question that anyhow, it doesn't matter what I do here because I'm good here. God says, fix it with Job. Fix it with him. 
And by the way, he also honors Job. Because remember, Job has been put down. His suffering has diminished him. These guys have been saying, you're getting what you deserve. If you were with us last time, Job was telling his friends, you guys think you're better than me. He felt put down. And by making the friends come to Job to make things right, God was exalting those who were humbled and humbling those who were exalted. He was setting the, the, the dynamic back in place and saying, you need to fix the relationship and you need to make things right with Job. Verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and so for the Namathite, did as the Lord commanded him. Them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Can you imagine going to Job? Hey, Job, about all that, man. You know, the thing about your kids getting what they deserved? Yeah, about that. About you deserving worse than you're getting? Yeah, about that. Um, we were way out of pocket. Hey, listen, I'm sorry. Will you forgive us? You know, we, God's upset. We need to make things right with you. Could you, 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 could you pray with us? And, and imagine Job being like me. It's a good thing it's the book of Job, not the book of Arlen, you know? Because it'd be like, um, ho, 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 really? So you're saying you want me to, you're in trouble with God? Well, them's the breaks right there, pal. You know, you, you know, I mean, let me throw some of your own words back at you, right? But, but Job doesn't do that. Job says, sure, guys, all's forgiven. And I'll go to God and say, God, please give him a break. It's okay. We're okay. It's big. And you know what the crazy part of the whole thing is to me? Is Job is praying for his friends when his own prayers have not been answered. Think about Job. Job is still lost. All. His wealth is gone. His, his, his kids are still gone, and that's not coming back. His health is still deteriorated. If Job felt prayer was working, his own life would be in a better position. It'd be easy for him to say, guys, I can't pray for you. I got my own problems over here. What's the point? I offered sacrifices for my kids for years, and they still ended up all gone. Why would I offer one for you? I, I mean, I, if I could get God to hear my prayers, I would ask him to heal me, but I'm still here. I don't know that I'm the guy to help you. Listen, it is such a statement of faith to pray for someone else when your own prayers have not been answered. It's such a statement of faith to pray for someone else when you are hurting still. It's big. It's hard to do. Like, how do I say, how, I, can't, I don't have time to pray for you. I got my own problems. But when you go to God and say, God, I believe you can do what I need and I am asking that you will, but you haven't done what I've hoped you would do yet, but I also believe you can do what they need you to do and, I, and I'm asking that you will, I'm gonna still pray for someone else even though I don't know that my prayers have been answered the way I want them. That's faith. And that's service. Job stepped out and helped his friends while he was hurting. And it says in verse 10 that when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. When he prayed for his friends, it all turned around. Now, God doubled his previous wealth. Let me make something very clear. Do not misread the verse. This is not some kind of a little gospel cheat code prosperity hack right here. Like, oh, ho, ho. so if I pray when I'm in trouble, God will double my wealth. That's not, Job is, listen, remember what I said week one. Job is an extreme character teaching an extreme lesson. He had extreme highs and privilege in his, his life when we first met him. He went through extreme loss and he goes through an extreme turnaround in the end. That is not the point of the story for you and me. But, but what we see that can apply to our lives, that what we can take from it for our lives is this, that regardless of what it looks like, the turning point in Job's journey 
was when in the middle of his own loss and heartache and long season of grieving, when he turned his attention towards his friends, when he began to help somebody else and serve somebody else and pray for somebody else, that became the turning moment in his life going forward. And that's hard to do. But that's a big deal because when we're struggling, I know it's so easy to be so absorbed by my struggle. I'm going through a bad time. Look at this, and it's consuming to us. And I would never be the one to tell you to your face when you're going through a hard time how you need to come out of it because that'd be like Job's friends. One-on-one, we're just like supportive and listening and caring. But I'm speaking to a room of people, not to anyone in particular, to those online. And I would say to all of us today, here's the deal. When you're going through a tough time and you're grieving for a while, maybe very deeply, at some point, maybe, just maybe, the best way to get out of the rut, to get out of the fog and to find a path forward in the middle of our own loss and heartache and struggle and our own prayers, maybe the best path forward into life is when we start to help someone else, when we serve someone else, don't matter what we're going through, when we pray for someone else, And when Job turned his attention and said, well, God, I've been going through all this. It's all been about me. Woe is me. God, would you help the friends of mine who are in trouble? It was the turning point. That's a big lesson. That's a big takeaway. It's not intuitive sometimes. We sometimes pull away from doing things, but I think the best path forward is to wander back into a greater purpose, even when we're struggling ourselves. But God gave him twice as much as before. That's not my story. That's Job's extreme story. What does that look like, twice as much as before? Well, for Job, it looked like this. Verse 12, the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep. Now, if you remember week one, he had 7,000 sheep that were stolen from him. Now God has given him twice as many as before, and he now has 14,000. He used to have 6,000 camels. He lost them all. God has doubled that now. I mean, I'm sorry, he had 3,000 camels before. He lost all that. Now God's doubled it, giving him 6,000 camels. He used to have a, thousand, a 500 team of oxen. God has doubled that twice as before, and he has 1,000 now, 1,000 female donkeys. He's doubled everything. And then it says in verse number 13, he also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. Now the math nerds are going to be like, he already had seven sons and three daughters. Actually, God didn't double those, did he? Because, because he gave him twice as much as what he lost, then he should have given him 14 sons since he used to have seven, and six daughters since he used to have three. He didn't double his kids like he doubled all the other stuff. And my answer to you is that's the beauty of the story. Yes, God did. Yes, he did. Because the beautiful lesson being taught here is that, is that his children were not lost to him. They were separated from him, but they were still his children. And they'd be together again. They weren't lost. They were just away from, away from each other. See, the animals, I know we love animal life more. I mean, we watch a movie and animals suffer. We're like, oh, the poor animal. We're like, human suffering. We're like, popcorn, you know, because people are jerks. I get that. But here's the deal. In God's economy, he's like, look, you lost 7,000 sheep. Yeah, I'll give you 14,000. Those are gone. Those are gone. But here's 14,000. I'll double it all. But I don't need to give you, you had seven sons that died. I'm not going to give you 14 more. I'm going to give you seven more because that's double. I'm not going to give you six more daughters for the three you lost. I'm going to give you three more because you, now you have 14 sons and six daughters because the ones you lost are still yours. 
They're not gone forever. It's the hope we have. I sat through two funerals the past couple weeks here, and I got another one coming up shortly, and I, I, I keep thinking about how many times people who, as we grieve a loved one, we stare and think about how they're gone from us, and what has, helps sustain us in our grief is the fact that we have hope to see them again. That comes from the gospel, that God has loved us so much that he has done something for us, that Jesus is the good news, the gospel, through the sacrifice of Christ, so that death has been defeated, our sins have been forgiven, Jesus shows forgiveness on Calvary, resurrection from the dead, eternal life, and that, that good news, that good news that God is love is for the whole world, whether we believe it or not, but when we don't believe it, we don't have faith in it, we walk through our life without that faith, and death becomes despair. But when we have faith in what Jesus did, when we believe that he did that for us, that he's provided for our eternal destiny, that belief, that faith gives us a hope in loss that says you're, not, you're gone from me for now, but you're not gone forever. It's not goodbye, it's see you later. It changes everything for us. And Job knew in that moment that he didn't need 14 more sons and six, six more daughters. He still had the first set and God doubled them. Those we love our faith informs us that there's a reunion waiting one day. It says in verse 16 that Job lived 140 years after that. To see four generations of his children and grandchildren, he died an old man, lived a long, full life. Remember, in the old times, we studied this last year, people were living a little bit longer back at one time in ancient history. And Job lived a long life and saw some generations come up after him and ended well. I'm not saying Job did not suffer tremendously because he did. And in the middle of Job's sufferings, he was saying, God, why? But by the end of his life, God had blessed him, and not just in the end of his life. Thousands of years later, folks, Job is still blessing the world. Thousands of years later, Job's story is still making an impact. For thousands of years since then, we still hear his story, and we find strength in our suffering. We find strength in our trials, don't we? Why? Because what Job went through has inspired countless people. And so Job can now look back and say, at the time, I didn't like it, I didn't understand it. But looking back, God was faithful even through the worst parts of my life, and he had a purpose for it all. And I want to leave you with this thought today, and that is this, that you'll never see what God sees until you sit where God sits, right? We understand that how that works. We just don't get that perspective yet. And we can look from a distance and we can, we can guess or speculate, but we can't see from our vantage point what God sees. And there comes a space in our lives where we have to believe that one day our faith becomes sight and one day we'll get to see his perspective and what he's been up to and what he's doing. And I believe that in that day we'll be as okay with the story in, in all of its good, bad, and ugly parts as Job is now. But in the meantime, until we sit where God sits and sees what he sees, all we can do is trust. All we can do is choose to have faith in what we cannot see yet and rest in faith. And rest in faith. You'll never see how God sees until you sit where God sits. And I don't know. It doesn't make everything easy. I would not say this to somebody who's having a hard time tomorrow like Job's friends did. You need to change your perspective. We were grieving. It's ugly. But somehow through the process, let me just say to the crowd, to all of us, just a, a mindset to have as we go through life. 
that there's just some things that we won't understand until one day. But our faith tells us to trust and to rest in God until we do. And in the meantime, to wrap this up, maybe in the meantime, the turning point for your faith journey, the turning point for your struggle, the turning point for the fog that you're trying to work your way out of and find your path forward, perhaps the turning point of grief happens when we serve others in our own times of grief, when we help others in our own times of grief, when we pray for others in our own struggles and our own circumstances. Next week, we'll start talking about thrones, new little series. But for today, I hope that Job has been the inspiration to you that it has been to so many through the years. Let's pray.